Hi, welcome to our weekly three-minute therapy podcast. And three-minute therapy refers to the title of my book, which is about rational emotive behavior therapy, which I learned many, many years ago from the revolutionary psychologist Albert Ellis, who uh, changed the course of therapy from the psychoanalytically oriented type of therapy where you talk about your childhood and how that affects you now to uh, cognitive behavior therapy and rational emotive behavior therapy, where we focus on the cause of emotional problems, anxiety, depression, anger, and guilt on our thinking and a particular type of thinking, and that's thinking in terms of demands. Must, shoulds, supposed tos, have tos, demands we put on ourselves, others, and situations. And there are three main areas of demands and emotional problems. The first is a demand on oneself, and that takes the form of, because I strongly prefer to do well and get your approval, Therefore, I absolutely must, I have to, and if you disapprove of me, this shows me to be a loser. That causes anxiety, depression, and guilt. And the second area of demands is the demand on one on others, not on oneself, and that takes the form of because I prefer you to treat me well, kindly, considerately, lovingly, reciprocally and rationally, therefore you absolutely must, and if you don't, you're no good. You're a rotten person. And the final area is an impersonal demand on the conditions of one's life. It's not a demand on people, but a demand on life circumstances. And that takes the form of, because I prefer my life to be fair, easy, and hassle-free, therefore it absolutely must, And if it's not, that's horrible, terrible. I can't stand it, so I'll lose myself in drugs or procrastinate or even worse, just commit suicide. So what we do in Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy is we help you identify the musts that are causing your problems and help you dispute, challenge, and contradict the musts, but reinforce the preference. Today, uh, we're fortunate to have as our guest, Julie Motz, who has written a acclaimed book called Hands of Life from, I believe the subtitle, Julie, is From the Operating Room to Your Home. Is that correct? I think it's, as I recall, it's like an energy healer helps you with something change, healing change and transformation. Uh Uh-huh, great, healing change and transformation. And do you apply that to emotions as as well as people's physical state? Very much so, because the two are intimately connected. And that has became very clear to me, particularly when I was working in heart transplant surgery with uh, now famous or notorious Dr. Oz. Right, exactly. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work and particularly how you see it impinging on emotions? Okay. Well, um, I... As I write about my book, Hands of Life, I actually came to healing as many healers do through my own through my own issues. In my case, it was a fall on an acrobatics class that left me with intermittent upper back pain. 
And trying to find healing for that, I ended up in various, this is way back in the early 1980s. I ended up trying various alternative and then quite obscure modalities. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. I began to put together um, a synthesis for myself of what worked and what didn't. I was a documentary filmmaker at the time. And eventually this, these paths to healing became more intriguing to me than um, documentary filmmaking. And I decided to get a master's in public health at Columbia because I thought I would go into healthcare administration and change things that way. But as I was there, through a set of circumstances, I met up with Dr. Mehmet Oz, who actually through his wife, who was a Swedenborgian, had become interested in homeopathics and other alternative medicine. And he wanted to know what I knew that might help his heart patients. And I began working first before and after surgery, and then finally in the operating room. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I really began to see, first of all, that what I was calling energy was the flow of emotions through the body. And the key phrase here is through the body, that these emotions were particularly activated in different tissues, um, cells, and organs of the body. And that the, that when somebody had a physical trauma, there was an emotional response that often got blocked and that stayed in the body, even though the physical trauma apparently had passed. That was an area of huge fascination to me, how, how, how physically determining the emotions could be. The other thing that came to light as I was working in surgery was prenatal life, life in the womb, which my patients seemed to be going back to during surgery. And I couldn't figure it out. And then I suddenly realized, well, you know, when you're in the womb, somebody else breathes for you, which is exactly what happens in surgery. And in open heart surgery, your blood goes out of your body and comes back again, which is very much like fetal circulation, where the blood actually comes from the mother through the fetus and back again. So I thought, oh, these people are having what we call, what you're very familiar with, state-dependent memories. The famous, you know, the famous example of this is in in Proust's uh, de Temps Perdu, um, where he tasted madeleine, a particular kind of biscuit that he had tasted as a child and all these memories come flooding back to him. And we're all familiar with smelling a perfume or hearing a song from a time when we were dating someone and that comes back. So these people were experiencing state dependent memories of being in the womb. So I got very, very curious about what happens in the womb and how that affects us emotionally and physically later on in life. And that became a, a, a great focus for me in my work, not just tracking emotions, but tracking the thoughts that come from emotions and then how those beliefs and emotions are, how they act, act in the womb in the relationship between the, in, the, the fetus and the mother. Because in the womb, the mother is the universe. So it tends to have universal applications. The fetus assumes that the universe is going to be like this. And very often those patterns don't get changed, I guess, until you know they come along and work with somebody. So those were my experiences in surgery. And then I went on, and now I mostly work not in surgery. I, I would rather work with people who haven't aren't that sick, haven't somatized their emotional and physical trauma to the extent that they need surgery. I see. Now, um, so it sounds like there is some kind of uh, rapprochement between what you, the way you view it and we view it in fashion emotive behavior therapy. Um, but there yeah, are I was, differences. I, yeah. I was very interested when you brought up the question of demands, 
you know, because all the demands you mention are demands of a growing embryo and fetus in the womb. You know, they are, the, if, the, because to mommy, if you don't feed me, if you, you know, smoke and put nicotine in the bloodstream, if you drink too much coffee, eat too much sugar, put that in the bloodstream, you know, I could die or I could grow malformed, you know? So those demands, a lot of the demands you talk about are the very real demands of an embryo or a fetus on the mother because it's essential that those demands are met or they will die. That's a reality. And it sounds as if the people that you deal with have carried that reality on into their adult lives. Well, often they're not thinking so much they're gonna die if someone disapproves of them. In fact, that's kind of rare in the clients I've worked with. Rather, they're thinking they're no good, they're a loser, they're a rotten person, and they can't stand it. Uh, Julie, you mentioned uh, some things that are going on in utero, but how do we know? Uh, it sounds a bit like it might be anthropomorphizing. How do we know that a uh, fetus is thinking at all or if they are what they're thinking well of course it's it's i mean you can't anthropomorphize a human being a human is already and i'm not anthropomorphizing the baby already is a human so you know i have (laughs) i have done this through regression with patients over and over again and i have had people who knew nothing about embryology absolutely nothing accurately describe their journey from the fallopian tube to the womb. I mean, people who had never read an embryology text, never even knew it, actually described the sensation, the experience of that. So I, tr- I tend to trust that, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, and they say this about interpreting dreams, uh, what I'm going to say about our differences, and that is in interpreting dreams, a psychoanalyst will have a psychoanalytic interpretation of their client's dreams, whereas the REBT therapist will have a totally different interpretation based on how they see things. So um, I try not to interpret at all. I try just to listen to my patients, to exactly what they're saying, what they're experiencing, what they're seeing. I mean, I for me, it's very tempting, you know, and I'm sure you find it too, to to interpret because you see things but my i feel it's very much my job not to interpret to let the patient come to the experience completely themselves and have the experience themselves and then describe it to me yeah yeah, i I try to create the safety for them to do that yeah yeah very good and that's what i try to do also (laughs) when i ask them when you uh found out you were fired and you felt depressed, what were you thinking right after you found out you were fired fired before you started before you started to feel depressed? And the answers are I get are in the form of the way I formulate things, and that is uh, I must not get fired. Uh, this is horrible. I can't stand it. It's the end of the world, things like that. So it's my impression that that I'm not putting thoughts in their head, but these are the thoughts that they they report. And it's your impression, a similar kind of thing. Uh, this is just what they're experiencing, and this is what they say. And uh, it sounds like they're experiencing emotions from the womb. Is that right? 
Well, they're certainly experiencing situations from the room. But what I would, what I, the difference between what you and I would do is I would say to that same patient, you know, who talked about being right, I would say, where do you feel that in your body? What physical sensation goes along with that? That's how I would start the work. And then I would want to find out, well, what's the history of that body part? You know, what, that part of your spine, how was it affected in the past that is leading you to conclude your life is over because you've been fired? What, you know, what is the, what does that body part tell us? That's, I, that's, that's simply how I work. I feel, I feel more, I feel more, I'm, I'm more invested. I feel trusting the body more. I see. I see. And I assume that when you work with uh, your clients or patients, do you call them clients or patients? I call them patients. Yeah. So when you work with your patients, I assume that after you do your work with them, the, the energy work, uh, they tend to feel much better, get much better. Is that right? Well, sometimes they don't feel better immediately. Sometimes they feel terribly sad. Yeah. You know, sometimes they have to go through an emotional place that that we wouldn't necessarily yeah. call feeling good. But let me put it this way: they they either they either feel better or they have clarity. Sometimes both, and eventually they feel better or they wouldn't keep coming to see me. Exactly, exactly. And I have the same experience, the parallel experience where when uh, I help clients uh, identify their musts and shoulds and show them how they can question, challenge, and contradict them on a regular basis again and again and again, it's not a silver bullet or one trial learning, but it takes practice, then they feel and get, I like your distinction, they feel and get much better over the long term. So I uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me if both work, uh, we use different routes to similar results. Uh, but uh, do you have another way of looking at our uh, positive results, even though we use different methods, or do you think it's just parallel? You know, I don't. I don't know. I think that. I think what is the same is the creation of safety. You have to create safety for the person you're working with, which means, I don't know, in your case, I am continually working on myself. I am continually um, trying to bring up whatever is interfering with my being a completely loving person. I'm continually working on that so I can be more and more available for the people who show up for my help. That has felt to me that there, there hasn't been any stopping point for that. It's like, oh, now I've changed enough. I've learned enough. I've grown enough. I'm, you know, I can just continue to be a competent healer from where I am. For me, that work is is ongoing. It feels essential to me. I don't know uh, if you have the same experience. I do. I do. In fact, I teach my clients uh, what I call a three-minute exercise, uh, which is uh, something they write out. It's A, B, C, D, E, F, where A is the activating event. Say, I'm I was fired. B, I must not be unemployed, the irrational belief. C is there consequent emotion, I feel depressed, and then they write out D, E, and F. D is disputing or questioning the irrational belief. What's the evidence? And they write down, what's the evidence I must not be unemployed? And then E is effective new thinking or the answer to the question. There is no evidence I absolutely must not be unemployed. I It is what it is. Although I strongly prefer not to be unemployed, 
it doesn't make me a bad person if I'm fired. It just proves I'm an imperfect human who acts imperfectly and I can unconditionally accept myself as the imperfect human I am with this state. And then once they internalize that, which I said takes a lot of practice, they lead to F, your new feeling, which is frustration, disappointment, displeasure, concern, but not depression. And um, uh, as you do, I also do work on myself every day. I do one of those three-minute exercises every morning. I did one this morning on some must or should to, to keep myself must free and keep myself sane. Uh, so that's a very important practice. And I encourage my clients to do the same. Um, is there anything else you would like to add or we could add? I think we discussed well, uh, the basics here. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the issues that I deal with and the, the I, as I said, the impulse to take things back to the womb came from my work in surgery. But I, um, you know, I was working with heart transplant patients and heart transplant surgery. And one of the most significant things that I discovered is that the heart starts to beat at three weeks after conception when a woman misses her first menstrual period and knows she's pregnant. And what I discovered with my heart patients was that each one of them had been an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. So the mother's response to what was an unwelcome event affected their hearts with the very first beating of the heart. And, and that intrigued me, that really intrigued me. Um, and then I later discovered another correlation, which is that the primitive node, which is the precursor to the notochord, which is the precursor to the spine, also starts to form at three weeks after conception. And when you think of all the back problems people have, all the tremendous issues around back and back pain, um, I think that, and I've started to work with people around this, that if, if a mother is rejecting of the pregnancy, the primitive node doesn't form perfectly, the, the uh, notochord doesn't form perfectly, and the notochord stays in the body in the discs inside the spine. And I think if those are weakened, because if a mother is stressed, she'll pour stress hormones into the bloodstream, which limits the supply of oxygen, which means the cells can't differentiate and pr proliferate as they need to in the embryo, that the spine is actually weakened at that critical three weeks after conception point, and that much of the back issues that people have result from that. And that needs to be repatterned. The spine needs to be um, addressed around the early imperfections and what happened and how the body had to compensate for that. So that's been of great interest to me. Uh, um, as far as back problems go, I, for many years when I was younger, I had low back problems and I discovered the Agoscu method. Have you heard of Pete Agoscu? No. How do you spell his name? E-G-O, E-G-O, S-C-U-E. It's a Romanian name. E-G-O-S-C-U-E. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote a book called Pain Free, and that dramatically helped my low back problem. So fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there are uh as we're indicating, and this indicates also, there are different routes to positive outcomes. So mm -hmm. and different people uh depending on their proclivities use different routes. 
Well, thank you very much for being guest, Julie. Are there any last things you'd like to say or how people could get in touch with you or oh, your uh, book or anything like that? Sure. Well, my book is Hands of Life. It's available in a lot of Bay Area libraries, but also on Kindle and Amazon. My last name is spelled M-O-T-Z. Uh, my website is juliemotz.com. Uh, they can contact me through that, through that. And I'm always glad to discuss, you know, what I do and why I do it. And it's always changing as I'm sure your work is as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being a guest, uh, Julie Motz. And I'm Dr. Michael Edelstein. And I have a website as well, 3minutetherapy.com. Three is spelled out. And I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a a remote practice, phone, Zoom, FaceTime, and Skype. So if you'd like to uh, ask me any questions or contact me, just go to my website, 3minutetherapy.com, and you'll see contact information. Okay, thanks again, Julie, for being our guest. Lovely to spend the time with you.